Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let me add my uh, welcome to Justin's for you who are in this building or someplace in this building and maybe also joining us online. As Justin said, this is the fourth of five Advent sermons that the elders are bringing to you this uh, Christmas season. And Justin will uh, wrap it up next week on Christmas Day. As Mark Ritchie said, uh, it's always important to say if you're visiting with us, uh, come back and hear the regular preaching guy uh, next week. Don't don't evaluate the pulpit ministry uh, today. But it is a it is a pleasure to be with you. Our text today is Micah chapter five verses one through five. Micah is one of the twelve minor prophets in the Old Testament, uh, which is likely not a section of the Bible that uh, has many fingerprints on it. Uh, This section begins after the major prophets, so it follows the book of Daniel. To find the individual minor prophets in our Sunday school class, Dixie and I teach the seven and eight-year-olds. We've made it our goal to teach the children the the year that they're with us the books of the Bible, the order of the books of the Bible. So we've uh, either found or come up with little rhymes and songs to teach them the books of the Bible. And my favorite is the song that we use uh, for the minor prophets, because I still have to use it to find these, these little books. <clears throat> uh, I uh, debated about whether I would sing the song to you. <clears throat> I even thought about asking the children to help me, but I decided I don't know how that would come across, so I don't think I'll do that. That may uh, be too far for us as a dignified church. <clears throat> but... I will, I will uh, recite the poem to you. Uh, we, we put this poem to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, so you can kind of have that in your mind if you like. Minor prophets learn them well. First Hosea, then Joel. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Then Habakkuk, number eight, learn four more. That'll be great. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Minor prophets, don't you see, they complete the great O.T. And then we would take our first like that. <clears throat> well, okay, um, you probably didn't imagine that blessing from your church attendance today. <clears throat> well, let's find Micah. If you're, if you're using the, the Pew Bible, the black one that's on page 778, but find Micah with me. I'll read the text, and then we will, and then we'll pray. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return and the people, to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Our Father, now we come continuing in the wonder of the incarnation of your divine Son. And we pray now, thanking you for your word that you've left to us in this passage here from your prophet Micah. And we ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding and give us hearts to believe and see uh, that we may see wondrous things about him out of your word, that we may rejoice in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, a little information about Micah the prophet. If you just were to flip back to Micah 1.1, you'll see a little bit of his historical context. The word of the Lord that came to Micah Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria, another name for the northern land of Israel, and then Jerusalem, so both of them together. So notice he, he uh, prophesied um, for about 50 years during the reign of these kings. That would be between uh, 750 and 750 B.C. and 700 B.C., which is about 800 years before Christ. Uh, interestingly, Isaiah was a contemporary of, of Micah, and as you know, he has uh, several really uh, well-known uh, messianic prophecies. Well, during this time, the northern kingdom, known as Israel, was taken captive by the Assyrians in 722, and Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, with Jerusalem as its capital, almost fell to Assyria in 701. Micah predicts the fall of Jerusalem uh, to Babylon, which occurred in 586. The book of Michael, Micah cycles through um, proclamation of judgment on the nation because of their failure to keep the covenant. And then it always follows with promises of restoration and salvation. Let's go back to Micah 5. And, and notice here in verse 1, I'll read it again. It, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, but I'll tell you what I think the context is. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Uh, verse 1 describes a time of uh, enormous humiliation and distress for the city of Jerusalem and for her king, uh, here called the judge of Israel. Um, most commentators uh, think that the occasion for this verse is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian king uh, Sennacherib. That was in uh, 701. And uh, the king in Jerusalem at that time would have been Hezekiah. Now, although there was a miraculous deliverance by that angel that killed 185,000 Assyrian troops, it was still a time of great humiliation for the king, as Micah refers to him being struck on the cheek with a rod, whether that's literal or whether it's just because of his fear and humiliation before the Assyrians. You can read that story in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Well, in the midst of this darkness and humiliation, Micah brings a passage, a message of, of hope. Because he said, there will come a ruler of another caliber, 
a status, and status that will come. In verse 2, he announces the coming of this ruler. Let's read verse 2 again. But, and, and but is the contrasting uh, conjunction there, isn't it? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So in verse, in, in verse 2, he announces the coming of this ruler. And notice again, uh, is a definite contrast that he's making. He's been talking about the devastation of the mighty city of Jerusalem. And now he brings up this little hamlet called Bethlehem. He gives two descriptions of Bethlehem in this verse. First, uh, geographically, he calls, uh, he says, Bethlehem, oh Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah. Now there were, there were at least two Bethlehems in Israel at that time, one in Zebulun, uh, but that's not the one he's talking about. He's talking about the one called Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah was a district in the, in the tribe of, of, uh, of Judah. Um, so the Bethlehem of our text was about five or six miles uh, south of Jerusalem. And we know it, we know it well. As Jeff noted in his sermon last week, it was nearby Bethlehem was the burial place of, of Rachel. And of course, in the book of Ruth, it was noted that uh, it was the home of Naomi's husband and eventually the home of Ruth. And of course, we know it as the birthplace of, of uh, King David. So he, he identifies Bethlehem Ephrathah geographically. But then notice also he describes Bethlehem as little and insignificant. I couldn't find anything about the population of Bethlehem during the days of Micah. The best thing I could find was the estimate of the population of Bethlehem during the days of Jesus was three to 500 uh, population. So it wasn't a big it wasn't a big place. But the word little also implies something that is, or someone that is weak and insignificant and can even be, uh, be defined as something that is despised. The little town of Bethlehem was insignificant when it came to social, political, and military power and influence. In fact, uh, Bethlehem is hardly mentioned in the New Testament outside of the life of David other than the references that we've seen. Uh, when Joshua, in the book of Joshua, when he divided up the land, he listed the cities and towns that were given to Judah, and Bethlehem's not even mentioned in that, in that group. Uh, interesting that when, when, the, when the refugees came back from Babylon, uh, they listed the, the numbers, and I think it, I didn't write it down, but I think it was 123 people came back to Bethlehem. So it was still a very small, very small place. And when Micah lists the fortified cities in his book uh, that, were, that were attacked by, uh, by the Assyrians, uh, Bethlehem is not mentioned, meaning it was not a significant military target or a concern. Micah is the only prophet in the minor or major prophets other than Jeremiah that mentions the this the little town of Bethlehem, and Jeremiah just does it incidentally. Okay, so let's look at the original context again and purpose of Micah uh, chapter 2. So why under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did Micah 
mentioned Bethlehem in his announcement of the, of the coming future king of Israel. I think maybe there are two, two reasons. Um, one, he wanted to get the attention of his audience. And so when he said the word Bethlehem or wrote the word Bethlehem, uh, they immediately thought about something. Um, you know, we do that sometimes with different cities. I thought about one. Um, when you hear the name Kitty Hawk, do you, is the first thing that comes to your mind a little coastal town in North Carolina? Probably not. Um, what do you think of? You think of two brothers named Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, who made the, world, the world's first airplane flight. Uh, I just stumbled on this yesterday. Yesterday was the 120th anniversary of that flight. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Maybe this was inspired that I used the name. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so the point is, some, some towns and cities we hear, and we don't even think about the location, and we think about something else, like Kitty Hawk and the, and, the, uh, and the Wright brothers. Well, so what did Micah's audience think of when they heard Bethlehem? They would certainly think of the birthplace of King David. And then possibly, uh, since there have been a good many years, uh, well, six, seven hundred years since David, possibly they also began to, to think of Bethlehem as the, as the place uh, that began the Davidic dynasty from which the Messiah would come. Micah wanted them to think of David when they heard the word Bethlehem. But there's a second possible reason, I think, why Micah would have prophesied that Bethlehem will be the launching place for the Messianic kingdom. Sometimes places, place names, not only make us think about um, an event or maybe a person, but sometimes they can take on a, a, metaf a metaphor, a deeper meaning. So I'm going to try one on you and see what you think about this. Um, when I say the word uh, Waterloo, what do you think? Do you even know where Waterloo is? I didn't. Um, it's a small village in northern Belgium. But what comes to mind when you hear the word Waterloo? Napoleon, and how did he come out there at Waterloo? Uh, not too good. It was, it was, in, it was in 1815. And uh, it was the final defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte by the British Army. So um, this may not be true for, for a lot of us, but in our, in our day, the word Waterloo has a, is a metaphor for a final crushing defeat. For example, um, in, in politics, if a, if a politician loses a battle, I mean, loses an election, sometimes the... the uh, uh, the writer will say that was his Waterloo, meaning his political career is over. It, it's done. It's a final defeat. Or maybe a, um, a college football coach. He's had kind of a difficult, um, difficult year. Kind of reminds me of my alma mater down south at College Station. But and and uh, and finally he he loses a game to a key rival, and somebody writes and says that's his Waterloo. He's done. He's He's over. So another reason uh, why Micah included 
Bethlehem is perhaps because he had a deeper meaning that he wanted to, to uh, portray about the coming of the Messiah. So um, what did Bethlehem mean in the history of Israel and in the context of Micah's prophecy? Notice again in Micah 1 that Micah describes the darkness and despair and the siege of Jerusalem and the humiliation of their king. And again, the contrast is marked by the word but that begins the, um, uh, begins the second verse. But there needs to be a new king. But this king will not come from the mighty city of Jerusalem, but the unexpected, small, insignificant village of Bethlehem. One commentator observes, it was a smack in the eye for the haughty leadership of Jerusalem. Like powerful people in most capital cities, they would have imagined that any leadership like that began and ended in the metropolis. But that was not God's way. Uh, Bible scholar Bruce Waltke notes that this is an example of the truth that the Apostle Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 1, that the Lord delights to choose the weak and the despised things in this world to shame the wise and the strong so that man may boast in the Lord alone. We saw this, interestingly, in the example of David, the first, obviously, the first Davidic king. Remember when um, God sent Samuel to, uh, to Bethlehem, um, even though he was the despised and runt of Jesse's sons, he was God's choice to anoint the king. So little Bethlehem, not mighty Jerusalem, is the site of both the first king of the Davidic dynasty and the final king of the Davidic dynasty. So for Micah, Bethlehem is a metaphor for God's way of glorifying himself by accomplishing his purposes through small and despised means. Well, let's look now at his description of the Messianic king. We're only going to look at verse 2. He gives many descriptions and characteristics of this coming king. But I just want to point out three to you in, um, in verse 2. Three ways that he describes the future ruler. Uh, that <clears throat> Oh, by the way, I think that when you do this kind of sermon and you, use a, you begin with an Old Testament prophecy and then you show the fulfillment in the New Testament, you're supposed to unpack all the Old Testament without mentioning the fulfillment, and then go to the New Testament. Well, we don't have time to do that, and you already know where we're going, so we're going to show the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus in these, in these three descriptions. So look at what he says, the first point in describing the future ruler we've already alluded to, and that is his physical birth will be in Bethlehem. Out of you, O Bethlehem, shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. Um, Micah says two things, the birthplace of this person and that he will be a ruler, a king in Israel. He will come forth from the ancient city of David's birth. Notice that Micah jumps over Jerusalem. That's where all the other kings since David probably have been born. But now um, he jumps over Jerusalem and as the birthplace of the coming king Messiah to emphasize that his lineage is not... Uh, this, the grand city of Jerusalem is the birthplace of the coming king, um, nor the kings, the failed kings of Israel who have inhabited Jerusalem, but he comes from the pure springs of Jesse and David. 
Micah's contemporary Isaiah says this about the Messianic king. In Isaiah 11:1, 1, as a righteous branch, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The clear implication is that this ruler is a direct descendant of King David. He will be a son of David, but as the expectation and prophecy of the coming Messiah develops, he will be the son of David. Walkie notes that the Messiah, humanly speaking, will have the finest royal blood flowing in his veins and be an heir of God's eternal covenant with David. And this is interestingly how the first verse of the New Testament begins, uh, Matthew's genealogy, which is part of our Christmas story. When Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And when the angel Gabriel, in his proclamation of Mary in Luke 1, says, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In the gospel accounts, you may remember many times, uh, especially people that wanted Jesus' attention and wanted his healing, they referred to him as the son of David. <clears throat> and the Lord Jesus gladly owned that identification. So the first point is pretty simple. He was born in, uh, the future king will be born in Bethlehem. He will be a ruler in, um, in Israel. But Micah says there's more to this king's coming forth than his birth at Bethlehem that begins his physical life. There's another coming forth that, de that declares an additional component of the identity of this great king. Notice at the end of uh, verse 2, he will be a, a ruler, he will be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And my Hebrew scholar friends say that this coming forth at the end of the verse is the same, uh, same construction as the coming forth from Bethlehem. Um, there's another coming forth that Micah wants to bring out to us. Um, these Hebrew words, um, let's see, the Hebrew words from of old and ancient of days, they can refer just to an ancient time in the nation of Israel. And that would be okay because maybe Micah would be saying, okay, we're going to uh, be sure you understand this Messiah is coming from old time, not just from the recent uh, heritage, but from old time from David himself. But the words old and ancient days also can refer to eternity. Indeed, they are used to describe uh, Yahweh, God, in several passages. I'll just give you uh, three of them. We've, uh, Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Same words as we see here. And then Habakkuk 1.12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? So the coming forth of this Messianic King from eternity clearly uh, declares his deity. He shares the attributes of eternal existence with God and therefore his deity himself. Well, I want to try a, a little thought experiment with you um, regarding the idea of eternity contrasted with uh, time. Uh, I want you to think of time as a, as a line, okay? And um, 
At one end is eternity past. That's for you, that ought to be on this end. On the other end is eternity future, and that ought to be on this end. If you put it in the biblical context that this is our timeline, then Genesis is on the end of this timeline, at the end of this end, and uh, what would be the book at the end of, e- of the timeline going to eternity future? Revelation. And that, uh, of course, Pastor Justin's opening that up for us. So I want you to think about this in your mind. I want you to look to, the, to eternity future. Okay, you, you're looking? Or what do you see? Well, you see some stuff. We've been hearing about it in, the, in Pastor Justin's uh, sermon. You see a, a throne, you see a garden, you see some trees. You see some things, don't you? Okay, now go to the other end of the timeline, to the book of Genesis, and then look to eternity past. What do you see there? Yeah, not much, right? We don't know much about that. We don't know much about eternity past. It boggles our mind. It, it scrambles our brain to think about eternity past. Well, I'm going to call on uh, A.W. Pink to help us think about that in his books, The Attributes of God. Here's what he says. <clears throat> in the beginning, God, there was a time if time it could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God, there was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to hymn his praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. And that not for a day or a year or an age, but from everlasting. During eternity past, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied. End of quote. And this description of God in eternity past includes the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As John said in his prologue, speaking of the Lord Jesus, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is co-eternal with God. When we join this coming forth from eternity with the other coming forth of his his physical birth in Jerusalem, uh, we see remarkable, stunning observations about the Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord. From this text, we see the deity of Christ, the eternity of Christ, and in some way that is not explained here, the joining of a divine and human nature in Christ the Messiah. And folks, I wouldn't dare attempt to explain these mysteries to you today because I cannot do it. But I'm grateful that our forefathers in the faith wrestled with these things and diligently worked them out in statements and documents preserved for us. We call them creeds and confessions. One of those is the Nicene Creed, composed by church leaders in the 4th century about 300 years after Christ. The Nicene Creed particularly emphasizes what the church thought and what we think today about the deity of Christ. So I'm going to read it to you. It's not very long. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, I mean God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. So friends, this is the baby. Come forth born in Bethlehem, but also having come forth from eternity. So one other point I think Micah makes about the Messiah, and it's found in in verse 2 with these two little words, uh, for me. Look at at the the middle of verse 2. Speaking of Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me. From you, from you, Bethlehem. Let me get the emphasis the right way. From you, Bethlehem, but for me. One commentator says it this way, or one Hebrew scholar thinks the Hebrew should be rendered like this. From you, Bethlehem, yes, but for me. From, from you, Bethlehem, yes, but for me. The point being made is that the greatness of the Messiah, oh, by the way, obviously, I hope it's obvious, the me, the pronoun me, is uh, Yahweh himself. This is God. This is the Father. He's <clears throat> so this is who the me is, saying that the Messiah will come forth for me. The point being made is that the greatness of the Messiah is not based on the place of his birth, small and insignificant Bethlehem, but on the anointing and calling of Yahweh on his life and his mission. These words are reminiscent of the words that the Lord, uh, of the Lord to Samuel when he sent him to Bethlehem. After the failure of, of uh, the first king, King Saul, he sent him to Bethlehem uh, to the house of Jesse to anoint David as king. And he said, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The idea of for me is that the Messiah, and this is the Hebrew, Hebrew meaning, the idea for me is that the Messiah will serve the Lord's plans and accomplish his mission. So I think it's important to say that before Israel, before, before the Messiah was Israel's Messiah, he was God's Messiah. There would be an intimate relationship between the Messiah and Yahweh. As we see in the New Testament, intimacy between the Father and the Son. In this relationship, we see the love of the Father for the Son, and we see the corresponding love of the Son for the Father that was made evident by his complete obedience uh, to his Father to accomplish his Father's mission. To observe these truths, we need to do little but just read the Scriptures. That's what I'm going to do for you. Uh, Could I ask you to do something as I read these Scriptures? Would you take yourself out of the story? 
Now, that's hard to do because we're in the story, and we're glad we're in the story. But take yourself out of the story for a couple of minutes and think about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Here's some scriptures. And, and, and think about, again, referring back to what Micah says, this illustrates how the Messiah is for me, for God, for the Father. Matthew 3.17, at Jesus' baptism, when he went up out of the water, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The same voice from heaven spoke at the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. The Apostle Paul, and we could go so many other places, but the Apostle Paul in 1 Peter 2 says that the Christ is chosen and precious in the sight of his Father. In John 10, the Good Shepherd passage, Jesus says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep, that I may take it again. Then the Lord adds, This charge I have received from my Father. So notice what's happening here. The Father loves the Son, and He's given, he's, he's given Him an assignment, and we know it is to redeem a people for himself. But Jesus says, I've received this charge from my Father, and it's because I lay down my life for the sheep that the Father loves me. Now, <clears throat> maybe you're asking the question, well, wait just a minute. I thought the Father loved the Son from all of eternity past. So is this some additional love, or what is this? What does this mean that the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep? How could he love him anymore? Well, Matthew Henry helps us there. He notes that in this case, the father is loving his son as the God-man, as Emmanuel. He was therefore beloved of the father because he undertook to die for the sheep. Therefore, God's soul delighted in him because he was his faithful servant. He was fulfilling the task that God had called him to. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, We must be content to admire and believe what we cannot fully understand. But the point of this relationship between the Father and the Son was that when the Son obeyed the Father, and as he obeyed the Father, of course, during his whole life, um, the, the love of the Father was manifested to him. Now, in Philippians 2, I'm grateful we've already read it. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' love for his Father was demonstrated by his complete obedience to fulfill the Father's plan. And being found, and here, here's what Paul says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it was at the, it was at the cross that the love of God and the obedience of the love of God for the Son and the obedience of the Son to the Father came to its pinnacle. I love what John Piper says. At the cross, the obedience of the Son to his Father reached its climactic and ultimate expression. And thus the love of the Father for the Son reached explosive proportions. It's from his book, The Pleasures of God. So we, we see here in the relationship between the Father and the Son something of the meaning of the words of Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah will be for me. That is, he will be his beloved son who fulfills his plan and mission. Well, remember, I asked you to take yourself out of the, out of the story for just a moment. 
um, as we observe the intimacy of the Father and the Son. Uh, but don't worry, my believing friend, you are inseparably in the redemption story of the Father and the Son. You're the, you're the recipient, both of the love of the Father and of the Son. <clears throat> Listen to Matthew Henry, I'll repeat it a couple of times. He says, what an instance of this, of this talking about the, his assignment to the Son, to, uh, that, that he would, his love was shown particularly to the Son as he, obe- as a, he obeyed the Father to, to go to the cross. He says this, uh, Matthew Henry says, what an instance is this of God's love to man that he loved his Son the more for loving us. What an instance is this of God's love to man that he loved his son the more because he loved us. Mm. Now to recap quickly before we go to Matthew 2 and finish this up, we've seen a little bit of the context of Micah's prophecy um, that he would send a, a better king and he gave us three descriptions of this king. He would be the final son of David from the royal lineage begun in lowly Bethlehem and the recipient and fulfillment of all the promises of David. He would not only come forth in a physical birth from Bethlehem, but he would come forth from eternity. He would be deity incarnate. And finally, he would be God's Messiah and would completely fulfill the Father's will and accomplish his plan. Now, jump with me real quick. It's not really very many pages to Matthew uh, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Let's just read the first, uh, first six verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where, excuse me, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and, and all Jerusalem with him, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, quoting Micah chapter 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. By the way, that's a really compressed kind of a paraphrase, I guess, of, of Micah 5, 1 or 2 through, two through 6. Well, here are just a, two or three observations. When you look at this story, in some ways it is a repeat of what Micah said in uh, Micah chapter 5. Uh, the Magi came looking for the king of Israel, and so, of course, where would you go? You'd go to the capital city of Israel. That's where kings are born. That's where they stay, and so that's where they went. Um, where else would you find a king? And think about this for a minute. Apparently, the star led them there. That's how they knew where to come. Perhaps God had a lesson for the Magi, that his ways are not man's ways. Here were these, you know, sometimes we call them uh, the three kings. These are apparently very magisterial type guys, and they're used to opulence and, you know, living in royal uh, surroundings. 
And so uh, they are assuming that's where they're going to go, and they're going to, you know, meet uh, meet the royal family and this uh, this new king. And so God, perhaps God led them by the by the star to Jerusalem because He has a lesson for these proud uh, men, and the lesson is that His ways are not man's ways, as we saw in the metaphor meaning of Bethlehem is used by Micah. He uses small and insignificant means, places, and people to accomplish his will to glorify himself. And then notice the written word of God gave full and precise direction in Revelation. Uh, the star led them to, the, to Jerusalem, kind of the general area, but it was the word of God from Micah written down. These, these uh, priests and, and uh, the high priest and the scribes, they opened up a scroll and they looked in this scroll that was written down. And it was the written word of God that finally led uh, the wise men, the magi, uh, to the Christ in Bethlehem. That direction came through the word of God written down by Micah the prophet, preserved for and cited by the scribes to answer Herod's question where the Messiah would be born. And then quickly, uh, a variety of responses to the news of the birth of the Messiah. I got this from a little uh, devotional by Alistair Begg. Um, one was hostility. Of course, this, this is epitomized by, um, hostility to Christ is, a, is epitomized by uh, Herod. This reaction comes from people who are intent on ruling their own kingdom and will allow no rival to their authority or their supposed autonomy to act in any way they, they choose, especially an absolute authority that demands absolute submission. And as Herod did, and Jeff told us the sad story last week, um, these people will also resist and eliminate anyone that threatens their rule. Of course, this is ultimately a losing battle, both in this life and the life to come. Uh, in fact, after the text of the, of the killing of the infants, the next verse says, but Herod died. So it's not a good plan to be hostile to the, uh, to the king of the universe. Religious indifference is another one. The chief priests and the scribes of the people accurately cited the prophecy of the Old Testament, their sacred scriptures, but they didn't care. <sighs> oh, um... We're very busy and important people. Who has time to make the five-mile trip to see the Messiah? We've got religious work to do. Well, friends, that's the one that scares me the most. Maybe it should some of us in this room. <clears throat> that the one we're maybe most in danger of. It comes from over-familiarity with the blessed story of Christmas and the Incarnation. I think Mary... Um, the mother of Jesus is a good model for us. Remember in Luke, after, the, after the, um, the shepherds left, remember what Luke says about Mary. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So in this busy season, let's stop and treasure and ponder Christ's incarnation and its meaning. And then the third reaction response, of course, is the one that we want. It's the, it's the one of the out-of-town visitors, this joyful worship Joy and worship in the presence of the newborn king. Uh, two weeks ago, I, I liked what Elder Mark said in his sermon on Abraham. Uh, 
he admonished us to rejoice in Christ. He noted that Abraham rejoiced and was glad to see the day of Christ. And here we see the same thing about the Magi. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It's like Matthew's piling on a, a superlative. They rejoice, but not just rejoice, they rejoice with exceeding uh, great joy. May God give us grace to delight in his son and worship him today. Well, I have one application. I had three in my original sermon, but because I think that's what you're supposed to do. But I'm just going to do one. We've already had some application. So let me just give you this one. I hope, it, I hope it's a clear gospel application for believers and unbelievers. And I draw it from, well, all these three points are my favorite, but I draw it from the point in Micah 5 2, the for me. The Messiah is for me. And we talked about how the, how the Father was pleased with the Son. And he was satisfied with the Son. <clears throat> he would be pleased with the Messiah because he would accomplish his will. The point is that God is satisfied with the redemptive work of his Son to justify sinners. In the substitutionary death of his Son, his justice is accomplished and his wrath is satisfied. We know this because... Three days later, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. He would not have done that if there was any question that the Messiah had left incomplete anything needed for the salvation of sinners. So my dear believer who may be struggling with assurance or with doubts and longing for assurance, if God is satisfied with the work of Christ, you can be too. If God is satisfied with the work of Christ, you should be satisfied with the work of Christ. If God is satisfied with the work of Christ, you must be satisfied with the work of Christ. Tell your conscience it can, it can cease condemning its condemning voice because your hope is in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. And tell the devil that though your sins are many and flagrant, you no longer listen to his accusing voice because your Savior has borne your, sin, his, borne your sins in his body on the tree and completed the work of your redemption. And to you who have not yet found your hope and faith in Christ, the just and righteous God is pleased and satisfied with the work of his son for sinners like you. He has given him a name that is above every name, and thus the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust and of your faith. So I welcome you and urge you to own your sins against a righteous God and put your faith and hope in his Son, the Messiah, as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us today. We pray that you would anoint it by your Spirit and bring it home to our hearts, that we may rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may find him sufficient for all of our needs of our salvation as you have been satisfied with him. And for those, O oh Lord, that are among us that yet have found their hope in Christ, I pray today you would display him beautifully before their minds and their hearts, that they would see their need and find your solution, your hope, and their hope in our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.